Well, good evening. In football, you have to worry about clock management, so we're competing with clock management tonight, and we'll have to manage our clocks. Well, we've done just five little messages, and all we've done is put our toe in the water. There are 52 chapters in this book, and I hope that you will go back and look at it in a different light and find yourself studying through the rest of the book and begin to ask yourself, what is God trying to say to Israel in that day? And then and only then can you say, now what does it mean to me? How can I learn from their mistakes and from the things that were done right as well as the things that were done wrong? Now there's six dates that we have to know to understand the book of Jeremiah, right? What's the first one? 640, wonderful. What happened in 640? Josiah became king. How old was he? Eight years old. Uh, what happened in 627 B.C.? Jeremiah became the prophet. So he had two young guys, one on the throne and one in the prophetic ministry, probably in their late teens. We know Josiah was, and perhaps Jeremiah was as well. And then what happened in 609 B.C.? A lot of things happened. What's the first thing that happened? Josiah was killed at Megiddo, trying to stop the Egyptians from going to help the Assyrians. And the Egyptians killed him. And even though they went to help the Assyrians, the Assyrians still lost. And so the people of the land put Josiah's son on the throne. What was his name? Jehoahaz. And when Pharaoh Necho came back south, he said, I'll decide who sits on the throne. And he took Jehoahaz into captivity in Egypt and put his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. Jehoahaz lasted how long? Three months. And Jehoiakim lasted how long? Eleven years. So in 605 B.C., what happened? Babylon really takes over at this point. And the Scriptures don't tell us much of what happened. We wouldn't know this if we didn't have the book of Daniel. But we know that something happened in 605 Perhaps uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent messengers to Jerusalem to say, from now on, I want you to send your mortgage money to my bank. I'm in charge of things. But he himself uh, beat a hasty retreat back to Babylon because his father, Nabopolassar, had died, and he went back to take the throne, become the king. And so in 605, Jehoiakim swore allegiance to Babylon. I will obey King Nebuchadnezzar and do whatever he tells me to do. But what happened in 597? He rebelled. And the people, when they saw the Babylonian army coming to surround the city, probably, uh, had put his young son Jehoiachin on the throne long enough to surrender the city to Nebuchadnezzar. They probably killed Jehoiakim in an effort to placate Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'll let you get away with it this time, but no more. The next time it happens, you're done for. And he put another son of Josiah on the throne. What was his name? Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Yahweh is righteous is what his name means. And he ruled how long? Eleven years. And he promised Nebuchadnezzar, I will obey you. I won't revolt against you. But he did revolt. And in 588, the Babylonian army came and besieged the city, surrounded it. After a year and a half, they broke through the walls and tore down the temple, tore down the city, 
took Zedekiah up to the town of Riblah, way up north. The last sight that he saw was his sons being killed. Then his eyes were poked out, and he was taken into captivity. What was the date for that? 586. So now you've got the six dates. I hope you won't forget those. Uh, I don't want you to lose sleep over them. But uh, put them on your refrigerator and remind yourself of what was going on in this book. And then when you read the book, you can say, okay, that's who that Jehoiakim guy is who didn't like Jeremiah and burned his scroll, tried to kill him, and so on. Now, as I said when we first started, I thought when I first started teaching Jeremiah some 50 years ago that uh, I should put it in order because if you read Jeremiah, it looks like a jumble of material. So I started trying to rearrange the book chronologically, the way Westerners tend to look at things. And eventually I said to myself, maybe the Lord has a reason for it being in this order. So let's look at it and try to figure out what kind of groupings of material did Jeremiah make down in Egypt when he put this book together? Because now remember, he's writing this book to people who are in the exile. And he wants them to understand why they wound up in exile. And so if you'll notice this first part of the book, chapters 1 through 29, we get into another whole section in chapter 30. It's the only part of the book that has a whole section devoted to encouragement and comfort. The rest of it is bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. So you'll notice in the first 18 chapters, we don't talk about the historical background that much, except in chapter 1 when Jeremiah is called. And that won't begin to happen until chapter 20. We start talking about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Up to that point, there's no mention of history, and it's kind of hard to figure out how it fits in historically because there's no mention of who's king and who's not king. That's going to happen later on. But in this first section, we are understanding that there is an opportunity for Israel to repent, <clears throat> and God will lift the judgment that's coming upon them. If you were to ask me how that looks, I think it would look like this. Nebuchadnezzar would still be in charge. They would have to send their mortgage money every year to him, but they would still be in their homes. They would still have the temple. They would still have their king. Life would be fairly normal if they would have repented and trusted God for what was happening. But they refused to repent. In chapter 18, which we're doing tonight, and we're going to look into chapter 19 and hope we don't go into overtime, uh, we will talk about these two approaches. Because 18 talks about repentance all through the chapter. 19 never mentions it. So what do we have here? We have a literary motif, as we call it, literary idea, which is the pottery that brings these two chapters together. So in chapter 18, we have the potter. In chapter 19, we have the pot. And those two things bring the chapters together structurally. But also we're being told that in chapter 18, there was an opportunity to repent. Many years later, maybe as many as 10 years later, Chapter 19 comes along and says, no more repentance. It is done. Judgment is 
coming. So that brings us to chapter 18 tonight. And I want you to turn there with me. This is a chapter that you've heard sermons preached out of all the time. But I want you to see the context in which it's found. And that's what this is about. So we're talking about the potter. And I want to read to you the background of it in verses 1 through 4. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Now, pottery in that day was nothing but baked clay. You shaped a bowl or a vase or whatever you're going to use, and then you baked it in an oven, and it was very fragile. So when the husband didn't want to wash dishes anymore, he dropped a few of them, and the wife finally said, get out of the kitchen, I'll do the dishwashing. But when they broke, if they broke into large pieces, which they often did, then you use the pottery for a notepad. And we call these potsherds. And when you go to the city of Lachish, for instance, southwest of Jerusalem, which was besieged by the uh, Assyrians in 701, we found all kinds of potsherds there with letters on them. And we call these the Lachish letters coming from 700 B.C. Can you imagine? And in one of them, they even mentioned the prophet, but no name. I wonder if it was Jeremiah they were talking about, or Isaiah at that time in 701. So this is the potter. Because this stuff is so fragile, you're always replacing it, and therefore a potter always has a job. And there was probably a potter shop on every other corner in the city of Jerusalem. And so the question is, why is Jeremiah going down to the potter's house? And the crowd follows him, saying, where's old crazy Jerry going this time, and what's he going to say? And so they make their way down to the potter's house. He says, as we were watching... There he was making something on the wheel. Now, those of you that do this kind of stuff know that you have a wheel, a, a platform that turns, and you have pedals to operate it, and the platform turns, and you take your clay, and you put a glob of it on the platform, and as it turns, you start shaping it with your hands. And he's watching this guy shape this, whatever he's making, on the wheel, and the whole crowd is watching and the vessel that he made was clay was marred in the hand of the potter. And so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. You got the best clay you could find, pure, free from any blemishes if you could get it that way. And in the best of circumstances, you miss something. And so he's working with his hand going inside the bowl. He's about got it done and his finger catches on a little stone and it tears a hole in the pot. He takes the stone out and throws it away, disgusted, and crushes the clay down, reshapes it, and starts over again. He says, I think I'll make a pot for Mrs. Jones this time to put her flowers in instead of a soup bowl. And he changes it into another pot. Now, this is the background. And the people are saying, we see this every day, a hundred times a day. What's the big deal here? What's going on? What is Jeremiah going to say about this. I've got to teach you a little bit of Hebrew tonight, okay? Can't get away from that. The word for potter is yotzeer. Would you say that with me? Yotzeer. And the word, the verb to act like a potter is yatsar. Would you say that with me? Yatsar. That's the word that we have here. In Genesis chapter 2, 
it says that God took clay and he yatsard it and shaped it into a human being. Pottery and clay are pictures that are used several times in the Old Testament to indicate creativity and what God is doing. And so here, this pot picture is telling us about what God is doing in Israel. And so Jeremiah then begins to talk to them as God has revealed it to him about God's theology of himself. You can, I guess I can do that, can I? All right. God's theology of himself. What does God say about himself? What is his theology? Theology means a word about God, of course. And so God is talking about himself. What is God like? What does Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, teach us about God in this passage? Notice in verse 5, we have, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Number one, when God talks about his theology, he talks about his sovereign control. Now, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are issues that people debate all the time, always have, always will. It's not just a theological issue. Even the secular philosophers ask questions like, are we in a closed system? Does man determine his fate himself, or does fate cause man to do what he does? That's a philosophical question. And when we as Christians and believers try to solve these problems, we almost always get into trouble. Because you can go to one side or the other of the debate. If I slide down this side of the hill, I may become Arminian, all the way to semi-Pelagianism, which says you've got to work your way into heaven. Or I can slide down this side of the hill that said God is so absolute there's nothing I can do. When I was in seminary a few years ago, I had a classmate from Indonesia. And he'd grown up in the Dutch Reformed Church. And he said to me, in our church, we didn't have Sunday school, we didn't have missions, because they said, God is sovereign. If he wants people to get saved, he will save them. Now, that's an extreme point of view, and the Dutch were very, very hyper-Calvinistic. Matter of fact, a theological teaching friend of mine from Trinity Seminary told me, Homer, the tulip, you know what tulip is, the five points of Calvinism, the tulip didn't grow in Geneva, it grew in Holland meaning that Calvin wasn't as extreme as the Dutch people took it to be later on. So we have to stay balanced on this issue. But the Scriptures are very clear that God is sovereign. And they're very clear that I have a human responsibility. And we say, how can you reconcile that philosophically? You can't. And so you have these two things disappearing in the clouds, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we suspect that they meet behind the clouds some way, but we don't know how. And when I insist on making them meet, I almost always get into trouble. Now, if you want to know where the balance of this is, you talk to me. I have it. Uh, I have the correct perspective on the whole 
shooting match. But God says to Israel, I am in charge of what happens to you. You're not in charge. Jehoiakim's not in charge. He may think he is, but he's not in charge. I am in charge. I'm in sovereign control. In Muslim theology, there's a thing called kismet, which is almost like fate. If you're born poor, you're going to die poor. There's nothing you can do about it. That's the way Allah wills it. Nothing you can do. Bismillah, in the name of Allah. Nothing I can do about it. And that kind of extremism, the, the Christian church has for the most part avoided. And we're very grateful for that. Because God expects us to understand constantly my human responsibility to do what he tells me to do. At the same time, I take great comfort in knowing that it is God who's in charge of things and not me. I had a fellow one time tell me that the weather was so bad as it's been this last month. He said, I think the old man's away and the boys are running the weather. And I think sometimes in our Christian lives, we, we wonder if, if the old man's away, if God's away and somebody else is running the show because things are going to pot fast in the world. And we're asking ourselves, who's in charge up there? But I, as a believer, must come back to recognize that God is in charge. Now, if I left it there, if Jeremiah left it there, then that would be extremism, fatalism. There's nothing I can do. Just let God do what he's going to do. Nothing I can do about it. But we read, secondly, that God has a compassionate heart. How wonderful this is. He says in verse 7, The instant I speak concerning the nation and concerning the kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. Have we heard that before? Chapter 1, when he called Jeremiah, he says, You're going to have a six-fold message, four negatives and two positives. Pluck up, pull down, destroy, tear down, and on the positive side to build and to plant. And God says, if I were talking to a nation and I said, I'm going to pluck up and pull down and destroy you, if that nation <clears throat> against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. He said, now wait a minute, I thought God was immutable. That's a nice big 50%, 50 cent theological word. God doesn't change. But this says God can change his mind. Now, don't ask me to explain all that. It just says it here. I kind of believe the Bible. I just go along with what the Bible says. If a nation upon whom I have pronounced judgment and said that they were going to be destroyed, plucked up, and pulled down, if they will repent, I will change my mind and give them grace. Isn't that wonderful? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What a wonderful, wonderful word that is. No matter how bad, no matter how awful, God wants people to come to himself. He's a compassionate God. He reaches out to people. But he says in verse 9, there's another thing I want you to see. And that is, not only do I have a compassionate heart, but I have a just approach in verses 9 and 10. 
And the moment I speak concerning a nation or a kingdom to build it or to plant it, the two positive things, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will change my mind concerning the good with which I had said I would benefit it. So God says to Israel, you're at a juncture in your national history. You can decide, I'm going to repent and let God's grace pour over me and receive his benefits, or I'm going to be stubborn. Even though he's promised good things for me, I'm going to keep right on doing what I want to do and let him do what he wants to do. And God says, I'll change my mind and judge you if that happens. There it is, the whole subject of theology in three little points. God is sovereign. God is compassionate, but God is just. I'm not an authority on Islam, but I know that Islam views God in a different way than we view God. And their God is a rather fearsome, awesome God. And our God is a God of compassion. I beseech you to come boldly before the throne of grace and find grace to help in the time of need, says God. God reaches out to us with compassion. But if we refuse to respond, he's also a God of justice, and he will vindicate himself ultimately. And it's a fearsome thing, says the Bible, to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm grateful tonight that I'm under the shelter of his grace and love. Aren't you? And that I don't have to be afraid, worry. I know he's always there. Same time, I know he's my dad. And good dads know how to spank. I guess we can't spank these days. But God still spanks. And he will do it if I, as his child, for every son whom he loves, he chastens. Number three. We have God's plea to Judah to repent. Having said all this, having made his point with this crowd of people standing around watching this activity of the potter, <clears throat> Jeremiah now turns to them and says, God says this, Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am, what word do you have in your Bible? Fashioning, shaping, Guess what it is? Yatsar. I'm yatsaring. I'm shaping. I'm molding. I'm molding a disaster. I'm devising a plan against you. I'm going to judge you people. Don't you understand that the path you're taking is going to lead you into disaster? And I'm going to judge you. Therefore, return every man from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will everyone obey the dictate of his own evil heart. Now, I doubt very seriously that if the Judeans, that the Judeans ever said that as in that form. What Jeremiah is saying, what God is saying is, by your actions, this is what you're saying. We say to our kids, the way you're doing that, Tells me you don't have any respect for what I'm trying to teach you. 
And this is what you say, I don't respect my dad. But they wouldn't say that. Dad, I didn't say that. No, but by your actions, that's what you're indicating, that you don't respect me. And therefore, God is pleading with Judah to repent of their sins, but they're refusing to do it. Then he goes on with the rest of the chapter to talk about Israel's stupidity. How they leave the good things and go to the bad things. Isn't it amazing that in this world, people looking for pleasure and happiness wind up with complete misery? Because they're looking for it in the wrong places. They're looking for the wrong stuff. They think that alcohol will do it. Sex will do it. Dope will do it. If I can just do all of these things, if I can get this or that, I'll be a happy person. And they always wind up in self-destruction. I'm so grateful for a happy life because of what God has done in my life. And by walking with him, that is the way to happiness. Serendipity is finding something that you're not looking for. You don't find happiness by looking for it. You find happiness by being obedient to Christ. And serendipity says you find it by doing something else entirely. All right, this is chapter 18, God's message of himself. The message of the pots is that in chapter 18, the clay is soft. Repentance is still possible. The potter can reshape the pot into something else. The pot right now is shaped into judgment. God is going to judge Judah and Jerusalem. If they will repent, he'll reshape the pot and make it into a cup of blessing. That's chapter 18. But when Josiah died, the reform movement that he had started, turning people back to God, he thought, away from their idols, when he died, that reform movement came to a screeching halt. And his son Jehoiakim had no interest in spiritual things whatsoever. Jeremiah speaks very scathingly of him in chapter 21. He'll be buried with a burial of a jackass, says Jeremiah, because of his rebellion against God. And when that happened, the people went all, all the way back to their original practices of idolatry, just as they had before Josiah came along. And therefore, we come to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, the clay is hard. There is no possibility of repentance in chapter 19. I don't want to play on this too much. But God will eventually deal with people. And when we have people listening to the word of God, thinking about it, but not responding, they need to understand that the time may come when they can no longer do that. I'm not sure how that all works out, and I want to be very careful how I say it. But I would say to our country of America that we have to be careful as a country because sooner or later, every great nation falls in history. The second law of thermodynamics is that everything goes downhill. And sooner or later, America will fall if the Lord tarries one way or the other. 
Do I want it to fall? No, indeed. I want to keep getting my Social Security check. I want our government to be successful. I don't want things to collapse. But sooner or later, this country will fall. Now let's look at chapter 19. And it's just about halftime, so you can watch the next chapter. Chapter 19, we have irrevocable judgment. And so we read in chapter 19, and remember, this is a long time later. He put it together with chapter 18 because they both talk about pottery. And there's probably as much as 10 years, there are probably 10 years between the two chapters. And so we have again the setting in chapter 19, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask. The Hebrew word here is bokbuk. You know what it sounds like when you take a bottle and have water in it, you turn it and go bok, 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 bok. That's what they call this, a bok, bok, because it makes that kind of noise when you pour the water out of it. So take a little bok, bok, he says, a little flask of some kind that's been baked in the oven so it's hard. And I want you to take this out along with some elders of the priest and the people and go out to the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell you. Now let me give you a map here. I'm going to have to do it this way, so bear with me. This is an aerial view of Jerusalem. It's getting to be quite old now. A lot of changes since that picture was taken. But in it you will see <clears throat> three valleys. There's a valley on the east side called the Kidron Valley coming down here. Go the other direction. How about that? Kidron Valley going down here. There's a central valley going down through here that's pretty well filled in with debris right now. But at one time you can see how it came out here. And then there's the Hinnom Valley over here. It comes down around the city like this, goes over here, and all three of them join together and flow out into the Dead Sea. The city of David originally was made up of this little section right here. It's a very small area, only about 10 or 15 acres. And right now it's been dug down to the point that there's nothing much left of it. But that's what the city of David was originally. And then he and Solomon eventually started moving north, and eventually they built the temple platform up here and put the temple on top of it here and the royal palace somewhere in here as well. Now the Hebrew word for valley is gai. <clears throat> Say that with me. Gai. The people who owned this valley were called Hinnom. So at one time it was the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And so we put that together and we get gai Hinnom. Because of <coughs> Pardon me, because of the fact <clears throat> that this valley was used for burning children, it comes to be a symbol of hell. And so Gehenom becomes Gehenna in the New Testament as a picture of hell, a place of destruction and burning and so on. So he comes out of the city somewhere in this area here where there's a potsherd gate and brings the people down to the Hinnom Valley. Now, this is still a very deep valley. When you stand here and look up to this wall, it's a huge way up there, 150 feet or so. And this is a very deep valley. So he brings them out here, 
and he brings his little buck book with him. Now keep that in mind because it's going to show up as a prop in his discussion and his preaching in a little later on. <clears throat> Verse 3, this is the message. And let me back up here so that we can see what we're doing. The message of judgment in 3 through 9. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle because they have forsaken me, number one. And they have made this an alien place, the temple, number two. <clears throat> because they have burned incense in it to other gods, number three, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have ever known. And they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, number four. <clears throat> the blood of innocence means children. They've actually burned children to death in the Hinnom Valley. The Canaanite religion made a place for that. And I'll show you some pictures in a little bit to illustrate that point. Verse 5 says, They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I didn't command or speak, nor did it ever come to my mind to do this sort of thing. And therefore the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but it'll be called the valley of slaughter because I'm going to bring slaughter upon this place. And I will empty out the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. The word for empty out here is bakkothi. And I suspect he took the bottle and did like this. So you'll make all kinds of plans, but I'll empty them out. You're going to plan a defense for the city, but I'll empty them out. You're going to have an army prepared, but I'll empty them out. It's not going to help you. I'll empty it out. <clears throat> One of the children who came back from the exile back in 539 when the Persians released him and let him go back home. One of his names is Bakbukiah, whom Yahweh empties out. And I think they probably remembered this sermon from that time. They said, boy, did he ever empty us out. He really did. So verse 7 says, I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of heaven and for the beast of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. That is, people go by and they'll say, whatever happened to this place? Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss because of its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. What's going to happen is utterly unimaginable. You say, how could anyone eat their babies? We have the story in 1 Kings where King Jehoram is walking around the walls of the city and the city is under siege by the Syrians, not Assyrians, but the Syrians at that time. This was way back before Jeremiah's time. And a woman calls out to him and says, help me, O king. He says, how can I help you? I don't have a threshing floor left or a vineyard left or a vat of wine left. How can I help you? What are you talking about? And she said, my neighbor and I agreed that we would eat my baby today and her baby tomorrow. And so we killed my baby and we ate him. 
But now she's hitting her baby and won't let us eat him. The depravity that we can fall into when we're starving to death. And God says, that's what's going to happen to you. You'll eat each other's children. The siege will get so bad, you'll begin to starve. You think that can happen? In World War II, the Germans besieged Leningrad, which is now a different name, and besieged it for a thousand days, almost three years. People described that they would go into rooms sometimes, they'd find a human body hanging on a hook, like a hog hanging on a hook with slices of meat chopped out of the body. When you're starving to death, sometimes you do strange things. You say, I'd never do that. You've never starved to death. I don't know whether you will or not. Then in verse 10, we have the illustration of the judgment. He takes the flasks, the buck book, and he smashes it on the ground. And it breaks into pieces. And he said, this is what is going to happen to this people. I am going to bring judgment upon them. Verse 11 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Topheth till there's no place to bury. This valley is going to be full of graves and dead bodies. And thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet, and the house of Jerusalem, and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the places of Topheth, Topheth, because of all the house on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the host of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Tophet, we're not quite sure what the word means. It may mean an oven. But when the Canaanites were driven to the coast through the invasion of the Israelites, and then later another group of people came in, the Philistines, and they forced the Canaanites, many of them, up along the coast. <clears throat> and they became maritime people. They developed a great navy. They were great salesmen. Uh, they traded in all kinds of things. And because they had a particular dye that they got out of the Muroc shell there in uh, near Lebanon today, and they dyed the purple cloth that everybody wanted around the world. The Greeks called them purple people, which is Phoenician. And so from that time on, they'll be called Phoenicians, but they're really old Canaanites. Their main city was Sidon, and then they got the new city, Tyre, which was built out on the rock. But they became great traders. They controlled the whole southern Mediterranean. They took the alphabet with them. And when the Greeks saw them writing stuff down, they said, I think they're cheating us. We've got to learn to write. And so they took the Phoenician alphabet and made it into a Greek alphabet. And you and I are still using the same alphabet today. But when they moved out into the Mediterranean, they also began to develop colonies. And they went to North Africa and developed a big colony in present-day Tunis called Carthage. Carthage means in Canaanite language and Hebrew language, new city, new village. Carthage became a great power, and you know about the Carthaginians fighting the Romans, don't you? Who was the greatest Carthaginian of all? Hannibal. We have the prophet that confronts Jeremiah, whose name is Hananiah, meaning Yahweh is gracious. Hannibal means Baal is gracious. And so these Canaanites were nothing but I mean, these 
these uh, people living in North Africa, these Carthaginians, were nothing but Canaanites, and they brought the Canaanite religion with them. This is the Tophet at Carthage. It's been excavated. There's 64,000 square feet in this Tophet. And in a period of some 300 years, there were thousands, some estimated as many as 20,000 child sacrifices made in this place. Quite often, a sacrifice of a child was only done in extreme circumstances. If you are besieged by an army and you can't win and you're trying to make the gods get on your side, you take your child and sacrifice it so that the God will turn in favor towards you. And they would put them in these little jars. There's one translation that I saw that said, this is the offering to Tanit, the god, or goddess, she was a female, my own flesh. And these jars they find full of baby bones uh, because they had offered them to the gods. I look at this precious little baby over here. Think, how could you ever do something like that? But they did it. This picture comes from Tunis, and they thought, the thought is that it's a priest, Carthaginian priest, and he's carrying in his arm the little baby that he's going to go offer to the sacrifice. They burned him in the fire. <clears throat> they had special altars, apparently, and they would put the baby in the arms of the god, and it would roll off into the fire and be burned to death. God says, I never dreamed of such a thing. It never came to my mind. Where did you guys get these ideas? How do you get drawn away into all of this immorality, this hateful approach to yourselves and to your children and to your people when you could follow me and have the blessings of God in your life? Why do we as human beings do this? Why do we walk away from God why do we walk after our own flesh to our own destruction and bring ourselves into such utter chaos and misery? Why do we do this? God wants us to come to Him and to know the joy of salvation and all that that implies. As He says in John chapter 10, that they might go in and out and find pasture and have the joy of being with a good shepherd and having him provide for their needs. Well, this is as far as we're going in Jeremiah. Sort of like buying a book on Kindle. They say you can read the first chapter if you want to. Now you can go to the rest of the book, read the rest of the book. But notice we're living in the close of the, second, of the first temple period. The first temple period went from Solomon to Zedekiah, some 450 years or so. The temple will be rebuilt some 70 years later by the returnees, but it will be a small temple. And when Herod the Great, the great builder, built the new temple in Jerusalem, he had to build it around the old temple, Josephus tells us. Because if he started tearing down the temple to start over again, he'd have a riot on his hands. And he trained Levites and so on to work in the temple. And so they built this magnificent structure around it. And that begins what we call the Second Temple Era, beginning with the return from the exile and up until 70 A.D. when that temple is also destroyed. 
the Jewish people throughout their history have rebelled against God. The Gentile people throughout their history have rebelled against God. We are, by nature, a rebellious people. But God is a God of mercy. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Henceforth, your house, your temple, is left to you desolate. In the class that I'm teaching online right now, I've discovered I have three Jewish believers. Isn't that wonderful? We're seeing quite a few Jewish people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great blessing that is. May God help us to be faithful in witnessing to people, sharing our faith with people, that they might come to know Christ through our lives and through our words. Jeremiah had a tough ministry, but he was faithful all the way to the end. He bellyached quite a bit along the way, but he was faithful to the end. May God help us to be faithful as well. Thank you, Lord, for these dear men and women who've been listening to the word and involved in it. May